Well, that's a fun story. <laughs> Thanks, Jesus. It's never sounded so good, VJ, as when you're the voice of Jesus. So my heavenly Father will do to each one of you if you do not forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. We are on notice. Thank you for bringing us the word of the Lord. <laughs> if you have lived any time at all in this world, probably I'm willing to put money on it. Somebody has hurt you, right? That seems to be the way of things, whether or not they intended it, whether it was deliberate or accidental, whether it was a, a word spoken, an action committed or omitted, maybe a one-time wound, maybe a, a whole series over many years of pain inflicted, most of us, I suspect, are carrying around somebody or somebodies who continue to haunt us a little bit. Maybe it was an ex-partner, maybe it's a current partner, a parent, a child, a sibling, a work colleague. Maybe it's the dean of your favorite Episcopal cathedral. <laughs> I have hurt some of you in this room. Some of you in this room have hurt me. We've been living together now for almost 15 years. There's a lot of water under the bridge. We're all carrying around somebody, right? It's the one we struggle to forgive, the, the location of the grief and the anger and the trauma that lives in our bodies, right? It, it attaches itself to people we know, maybe people we used to know. I would say that of, of all the Christian theological concepts, the problem of forgiveness, right? Really, the problem of being unable to forgive, that is the one that shows up most often in my office. It's mostly women who bring this question, which I think tells us a lot about how men and women are socialized to think about whose responsibility it is to take the moral high road and release feelings of anger and resentment. It's almost always women who have sought this priest's advice when they find themselves hanging on to an injury, unable to reconcile a past wrong, holding on to feelings of rage and anger and hurt and betrayal, sometimes decades after the initiating offense. And that creates this deep sense of guilt, right? And maybe a lurking sense of fear, right? Especially when we look at parables like Jesus's. Is there something wrong with me if I can't do this? If I'm unable to forgive the one who has wronged me, am I going to be thrown into a heavenly prison cell and tortured by God, as seems to be the take-home message at the end of this very complicated parable that Matthew's gospel has for us about a slave who is forgiven but is himself unwilling to forgive his fellow debtor. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave, the master says, should you not have had mercy as I had mercy on you? And then Jesus says, in his anger, the Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. Watch out. Forgiveness is high stakes stuff, at least as far as Jesus is concerned. So maybe it would help to unpack the words a little bit. Forgiveness from the heart, that's the phrase that Jesus uses. That's a, that's a phrase that has been used and abused, forgiveness from the heart. And that, that phrase does not necessarily refer to the emotions, right? At least not in Greek, which is the original language in which this parable was told. Cardia, heart, for a Greek speaker, never refers to a physical organ in my chest that pumps blood. It is always used figuratively. And it means not just the emotional life, but kind of like the command center of a human life, the will, we might say, a place of decision-making. So one way that we could understand forgiveness from the heart would be the decision to forgive, right? Forgiveness, as Jesus imagines it, forgiveness is not a feeling, right? It's not waiting around to feel peaceful and calm and a bunch of warm fuzzies towards the one who wronged you. Forgiveness is not a feeling. 
It's a choice. It's a tactic, we might say, what one theologian has called a strategy for surviving an irrevocable wrong. It has to do with politics. It has to do with economics, actually, as much as it does with psychology. In the New Testament, forgiveness at a very basic level is setting aside a rightfully held obligation, a debt that somebody owes you. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. That's how Jesus first teaches his disciples to pray. And he probably means quite literally monetary debts. Somebody owes you something. And the idea of Christian moral reasoning is that you have power, right? You have agency. When somebody owes you something, you get to, you get to determine how that debt is going to be handled. You can extract payment, right? You can demand restitution. There's good biblical precedence for this. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Pay what you owe. That's what the unforgiving slave says to his fellow debtors, the words that get him into trouble with his master. Demanding payment is a very human thing. It's entirely within our rights. The philosopher Hannah Arendt thought it was a force of nature as natural as gravity, a kind of natural law of human interactions. Action, actions demand reactions. When somebody takes something from me, my natural response, the response, we might say the response of justice, the response of fairness, is to expect restitution, to have restored to me what has been taken. Pay what you owe. Make right what you have done wrong. That is the natural law of human interaction. And yet we know, as soon as we feel that place in us, the voice that demands justice for wrongs done, we know that there are moral, spiritual, often physical wrongs that can never be made right. When nine black churchgoers were gunned down in Charleston, South Carolina in 2015 by a white supremacist with a Glock 41, some of the victims' families, some but not all, publicly forgave the terrorist to his face. He had not repented. In fact, he continued to maintain that if he was given another chance, he would go out and do it again. So Nadine Collier, whose mother, Ethel Lance, was murdered that day in her weekly Bible study, said to the, to the killer, you took something very precious from me. I will never talk to my mother again. I will never hold her again. But I forgive you. The media had a field day with this, right? Barack Obama, who was president at the time, saluted the families for their acts of Christian charity. He said that the goodness of America shone through their actions, and the next day his, judgment, his Justice Department demanded the death penalty as punishment for the killing. It's a beautiful thing, apparently, when black people forgive a white supremacist who has killed their relatives and terrorized their communities. The state demands payment. That's retributive violence, right? That's the rule that governs our legal code in many places. A life taken demands another life be taken. And not everybody was comfortable with the forgiveness that was offered by the families of the victims of the Charleston shooting. Ta-Nehisi Coates said, I can't remember any campaign to love and forgive in the wake of ISIS beheadings. On the fifth anniversary of the shooting in 2020, the Reverend Walterina Matthews, whose cousin was among the victims, wrote that to insist on a narrative of forgiveness is itself dehumanizing and violent. And it goes against the very nature of lament. Why deny families, in this watershed moment of grief, she wrote, why deny families the right to lament? That's a powerful question, it seems to me. 
It asks a lot of complicated questions about what real forgiveness means. Is it, a, is it really a sign that we've, we've moved through our lament and our grief? Is it meant to be setting all of that aside, the painful feelings, and choosing instead to, to love the one who has wronged us, even when that one is unrepentant and violent still? Are the families of the victims of the Charleston shooting moving through their grief when they offer an unrepentant killer forgiveness? By their own reports, they are not. Another pastor. Anthony Thompson, whose wife, Myra Thompson, was gunned down that day in the church, chose to offer forgiveness to the killer. But once that was done, he said, as far as I'm concerned, he does not exist anymore. This thing is going to be with us for the rest of our lives, he said, and Dylan Roof has no place in that. For Pastor Thompson, forgiveness was not about releasing his grief and anger. It was an act of freedom, maybe an act of protest, an act of freedom against the one who had wronged him and an act of freedom for the ones who were wrong. He said, I am choosing to release you. I am choosing to let you go. You have no power over me. I live with my anger. I live with my pain. That sense of forgiveness is rooted, actually, in the right to lament a wrong done. Forgiveness that leaves space for grief and pain. Forgiveness, by that understanding, is the beginning of a process. It is not the end result. The word simply means to let go. That's literally all it means in Greek. To send something away, release, I think, is maybe a better word for what we're talking about, at least a, a word with some different cultural connotations than the complicated word forgiveness, which, try as we might to understand it, I think still conjures up this quasi-magical state where somehow I no longer feel bad about the stuff that was done to me. But Jesus' articulation of forgiveness has nothing to do with my feelings. It has nothing to do with forgetting. It's instead a choice to renounce my natural and just right to extract vengeance. It's the wrenching decision, as the Harvard theologian and Episcopal priest Matthew Ichihashi Potts writes, to forego retributive violence, to forswear vengeance and reject retribution. That forgiveness, forgiveness as a choice, right, not a feeling, Forgiveness that is chosen not once, but as Jesus suggests to Peter at the beginning of the story, 77 times, or 70 times 7, 490 times, which is to say over and over again. That kind of forgiveness, Matthew Potts says, is much more brokenhearted than wholehearted. It's much more tragedy than triumph. It's less a miracle and more about mourning. He says forgiveness is a strategy for surviving irrevocable wrong. It's how you keep living in the midst of something horrible that was done to you. In just a moment, after we say the creed, after we pray the prayers, we'll invite you into a moment of confession by long-standing Christian tradition. This is the moment in the service where we confess to God, as we say in the service, the evil we have done and the evil done on our behalf. And not everybody loves that language, right? The language of evil. That's, uh, that's complicated. It's one thing to, you know, do a little bit of an inventory, to think about all the ways I messed up this week. What traffic lights did I run? Who did I roll my eyes at instead of taking a deep breath and seeking to understand them better? What, what little white lies did I tell to make a social situation a little more smooth? It's very different to think about the evil I have done and the evil done on, on my behalf. What we say to God is, we have denied your goodness. We have denied your goodness in ourselves. We have denied your goodness in the world you have created. That's language that asks me to consider the possibility that I am caught in a network of sin and violence. 
Maybe a network of real evil, violence that is done all around the world in my name, on my behalf. This is a world in which my actions, however well-intentioned, can never be undone. A world in which we actually really do hurt one another, right? Sometimes deliberately, more often my sense is accidentally, but hurt one another we do. And much of the time we're blithely unaware of the hurt we are causing all the time. So once a week we invite you to take a second and reflect on, on what it means to be a human being, which is to say what it means to wield the power to hurt and also the power to heal. We're asked to think about people we have wronged, to consider the ways in which we have wronged the one who created us for love and for goodness, all the ways in which we've, we've failed to see the goodness in ourselves and in the people around us. Most of us think of ourselves as pretty decent people. I mean, we're Episcopalians after all, right? We're not good, we're not bad, we're just nice. But the confession asks me to think about what lies underneath my need to be nice. Maybe I'm not as good at this stuff as I think I am. There are things I've done that I can never undo. There are words that I have said that I can never take back. Then Shanna will stand up there and she'll say, Almighty God, have mercy on you. Forgive you all your sins through the grace of Jesus Christ. Strengthen you in all goodness. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life. That's the promise of forgiveness as God offers it to each one of us, right? The restoration of our goodness, which the prayer book says is a doorway into eternal life. This is life as it is meant to be lived, right? To live as, as forgiven people who know ourselves to be jerks deep down and yet are committed week by week to living in relationship with all the other jerks to right the wrongs where we can, and then to deal honestly day by day with the grief and the pain and the anger that we experience over what has been done to us, the stuff that lives in our bodies. Sometimes that means over time we find ourselves able to experience something like forgiveness from the heart, something like an emotional release. I think that experience, when it comes, is a holy gift. It comes not by dint of all my hard work. It comes as a gift of grace. Sometimes we live our lives in longing, in search for that feeling. Sometimes we live our lives running from that feeling. In that sense, forgiveness, it's a strategy that I practice, right? It's a habit I practice in order to get better at loving my enemy. And that is the hardest lesson I know. It's the lesson that breaks my heart wide open. It's the lesson I fight at every opportunity. And yet the invitation that I always feel underneath every angry, recalcitrant moment, that deeper invitation I feel. Maybe that's, maybe that's all that forgiveness is, the thing that leads me into the heart of God, the thing that, that leads me into the heart of goodness in itself, the choice to release the one who has wronged me so that that one and I can both find our goodness, whatever that might look like. I cannot predict or prescript what somebody else's goodness is going to look like. Only God can do that. But I can go on a quest in search of my own goodness. And that's where forgiveness starts to make sense to me. When I learn to forgive myself for all the ways in which I know myself to be a pretty nasty piece of work, and learn to live out of a different place, a more expansive goodness, a greater sense of, of freedom, I think forgiveness is meant to, I mean, it's like the parable, right? You open the prison cell and you let somebody go.
So may you be strengthened, friends. May you be strengthened in goodness as you seek not only to hear these words, but to put them into practice. This might be the most important thing we have to offer a world of violence, the decision to turn to goodness rather than revenge. That's not easy. I think it's worth it.